0: Hello and welcome to the latest BICOM podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of BICOM here in Jerusalem. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Goldberg, who is a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Richard, thank you very much indeed for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Just as a little bit of background uh, for people that don't know, the Foundation for Defence of Democracies, FDD, is a Washington-based research institute focusing on national security and foreign policy. Um, Richard Goldberg himself, before joining the FDD, served as the Director for Countering Iranian Weapons of Mass Destruction for the White House National Security Council. And before that, he was a Senior Foreign Policy Advisor to Senator Mark Kirk. Where he was instrumental in delivering the tough sanctions imposed on Iran by the Senate. So, Richard, I think you're a, you're a great person to ask. And If we can start start off, um, just re- reflecting back to the Trump administration that you were you were a part of and their proponent of uh, the maximum pressure campaign on Iran. How do you reflect on that uh, on, on that uh, policy now?
1: I reflect on it as more successful than I even could have imagined, and I had written. Back in 2017, uh, urging President Trump before I was in the administration uh, to uh, withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, uh, reimpose U.S. sanctions. And I made the argument that U.S. sanctions could be effective without support from Europe, without support from Asia. A lot of people did not believe that was true. They sort of had this feeling of U.S. sanctions only worked the first time with Iran because we had European allies supportive of sanctions and imposing their own sanctions. And I said, no, that's just not how U.S. sanctions work. If we reimpose our sanctions, all other countries will follow and we can do enormous economic damage uh, to the Islamic Republic, drive their revenues uh, down towards zero and force the regime to a choice ultimately between having... Uh, a, a very abnormal type conduct in the world of sponsoring terrorism, proliferating missiles, and pursuing nuclear weapons uh, versus having some sort of a normalized relationship with the West if they simply gave up this illicit conduct or watch their regime collapse, uh, being the alternative. And when we reflect on where we were coming into this year, just using the IMF data that we heard about earlier in the year, Iran was down to just $4 billion of accessible foreign exchange reserves, down from $122 billion in 2017. It's tremendous. That's all the money that just got locked up in escrow accounts around the world that were not accessible to the regime anymore. You saw the currency going down. You saw protests and riots breaking out, massive uh, uh, uprising in late 2019 that the regime put down with brutal force. It's really you saw a regime that was starting to come to terms, particularly after the killing of Qasem Soleimani and their realization that they did not uh, have the ability to extort the United States through terrorism, through nuclear expansion, uh, that there might be a military price to pay uh, at the end of the day if they pushed the envelope too far, which kept them enough in the box while the sanctions pressure increased to bring them to that decision point. Now we never got to that decision point because obviously we've had a change in government in the United States. We've had a change in policy. uh, And we are for the last 10 months or so in what I like to call not maximum pressure, but maximum deference, uh, which is this idea of let's be a little nicer to the regime. Let's not enforce the sanctions. Let's offer to go back to the nuclear deal. Let's not threaten military action. Uh, In the face of of military strikes against our own personnel in the region, let's not push the regime in Vienna at the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, which was happening over the last couple of years, particularly uh, with respect to an investigation stemming from that discovery. Your listeners will recall in 2018 when the Mossad revealed they had stolen that uh, secret nuclear weapons archive out of Iran. Well, that's a treasure trove of information that has led to multiple investigations at the IAEA into undeclared nuclear activities. All that continues to go on the backdrop, not being pushed today. Uh, And so that's the backdrop today. And we see over the last several months, obviously, Iran's access to revenue increasing, uh, their imports, their exports increasing, uh, really a stabilizing economy uh, since uh, 2020. Uh, And at the same time, a rapidly expanding nuclear program. Uh, attacks against the U.S. and our allies, no pressure at the IAEA, and that sort of sets the table with this new EC government uh, in charge going back to Vienna uh, for another round of indirect talks on what will become the state of Iran's nuclear program and U.S. policy towards it.
0: Right. Um, there's lots a lot to unpack there. Thank you. Thank you for that opening open comment. I mean, first of all, as you mentioned at the end, we, we're looking toward next week. Um, the resumption of the talks in in Vienna. Um, what's your assessment of why you think it took uh, the the Iranians so long? Six months since uh, since President Raisi has uh, has taken over. How long? To, it's why did it take them so long to get them back in the room?
1: Well, I think that a lot of this is setting the table for where they wanted to start negotiations, uh, and a lot of it has to do with how far could they push the Americans? What, you know, how far can they push the envelope? This is a regime that if you give an inch, they take a mile, whatever metaphor you want to use, cliche you want to use. Uh, they react in different ways to pressure and to appeasement. It, it's, it's a very classic case uh, of a regime that sort of um, runs away when they are deterred, uh, but continues to expand and move outward and, and push the envelope when they are left undeterred. And so if they went ahead in beginning of this year, started enriching uranium from where they had been in low enriched uranium at 3.5% purity levels, they took it up in January to 20%. And they sort of looked around the world and said, anybody going to stop us? And nobody did anything. So they turned around and said, okay, well, let's see what happens if we go to 60% (laughs) purity of enriched uranium. They look around the world. Nobody's doing anything to stop them. So then they say, OK, well, we're going to produce 20 percent enriched uranium metal, which is a key component of nuclear weapons. And they're looking around the world. And again, nobody's doing anything to stop them. Meanwhile, they are conducting drone attacks in Iraq against U.S. forces, drone attacks in Syria, attacks in the Gulf. their are uh, Houthi terrorist proxies in Yemen, attacking our Gulf allies, uh, continuing to arm Hezbollah and Hamas to threaten Israel. Nobody's doing anything about it. Um, you know, so. For them, it's sort of, okay. meanwhile, sanctions are no longer being enforced by the Biden administration. The Chinese are now importing three times as much or more oil uh, from Iran as they were just last year. So the revenue situation for the Iranians has improved. The economic forecast for the Iranians has improved. They have access to billions of dollars more money because the Biden administration has actually relaxed some of our sanctions to allow Iran to use some of these locked up funds around the world to pay off its debts. So if you're getting access to money, your economy is stabilizing, and you're rapidly expanding your nuclear program and your terrorist activities with no deterrence, why would you go back to the table, right? I mean, at this point, it's sort of, okay, we're willing to talk, but now we have a new nuclear baseline. We're not going to go back to the JCPOA. We're not going to go back to those old restrictions. This is our new nuclear baseline for negotiation. This is our new posture. Uh, and what are you going to do about it, United States? Uh, you talk tough, but you haven't done anything in the entire year. So I think this has really been just a series of uh, excuses that the Iranians have produced in order to say why they need more time before going back. Okay, there's an election. They need to prepare for the election. They can't go to negotiation before an election. OK, well, that's six months of time to just do whatever you want and expand your nuclear program. Well, now we've had an elections, you know, supposedly we have to have a transition time. We're not ready for talks. Well, there is almost another six months of nuclear expansion. So they've completely played the, the United States, the, uh, the European powers for the entire year completely gotten everything that they wanted from the economic sense and the nuclear realm. And perhaps now they're ready to begin a negotiation on their terms, having regained all their leverage. Uh, and so that, to me, is a very scary prospect of, of the environment we're walking into in Vienna. Um,
0: can you just recap perhaps for our audience and kind of what, what are the key demands that the Iranians are making in order to return to the, uh, to the agreement?
1: Yeah, so the Iranians have made a few things clear. They've, they've added on some things since the Raisi transition. Their sort of staple demand throughout the year has been, we're not going to do anything until the United States lifts all of its sanctions. You know, Their view is the U.S. left the JCPOA, the U.S. violated the deal. Um, and so Iran doesn't have to come back into compliance with any deal until the United States comes back first. And so there's a sequencing issue. They want to say, give us all the money up front, and then we'll think about coming back into the deal, right? So obviously, that doesn't work for the Biden administration. First of all, how do you know they don't just take the money and run? Uh, you know, and second of all, you know, politically, how does, how does a Biden administration sell that to Congress or anybody else? Yeah, we're just going to lift all the sanctions now and just hope that they come back into compliance. Um, so, so that hasn't happened. And the second thing that they're asking for, which is even more unrealistic and quite frankly impossible, is a guarantee from the Biden administration that the United States will never again reimpose sanctions, that if they agree to come back to the JCPOA, if they come back to any nuclear agreement and there's a deal to lift sanctions in exchange for some Iranian concession, that that's it. There's no more Donald Trump coming into the room and saying, I'm out of the deal. I'm putting sanctions back. You need legal guarantees that sanctions are lifted forever. And of course, in the United States, there's no such thing, right? This is right. foreign policy. These are sanctions. It's the president's prerogative. You could have a treaty ratified by the Senate, but even treaties uh, can be exited by presidents in the future. So again, the Iranians know all this. These, these are sort of ridiculous negotiating demands that they're putting forward, uh, which again show you maybe they're not so interested in going back to the jcpoa maybe they're actually playing for something even worse than the jcpoa bag all these nuclear gains create a new baseline and now negotiate some sort of sanctions relief for even fewer concessions than we had in the jcpoa
0: well that's what i was going to, going to ask you You mentioned about kind of the, the level of enrichment uh, um of, uh, of 20% into 60%. At what point do you think that the, the terms that they're even negotiating relating to the JCPOA become, become irrelevant?
1: Uh, I think largely they are already irrelevant. And, and this has uh, been a strategic mistake for the Biden administration, in my opinion, from day one. And I wrote about this with my colleague, Mark Dubowitz, during the transition, about all the reasons why it made no sense to negotiate Over returning to the JCPOA, even before what's happened this year with the Iranian nuclear program. The the JCPOA was a temporary agreement. Even for the skeptics who begrudgingly supported the JCPOA, a lot of people inside the Obama administration would make this argument it at least gives us five years. To explore other options is what they said. It's a, you know, really it's a five year agreement, and then the rest of the agreement's really, really bad and, and very, very good for Iran. And we can always exit it. We can do what's called a snapback of international sanctions up until 2025. But really, if you were in this deal and you never negotiated a follow on deal by October of 2020, you shouldn't be in the deal anymore because October 2020 was when the first so called sunset of the deal kicked in. That was the arms embargo uh, lifting, expiring at the Security Council. We're going to have missile restrictions uh, and other centrifuge restrictions lifting in the next couple of years, 2025, additional nuclear restrictions. By 2031, the deal basically authorizes Iran to have a full, baked, you know, on the precipice of nuclear weapons program as far as having weapons-grade enriched material allowed by the Security Council. Uh, Meanwhile, throughout this time, they're allowed to advance their missile program. There's no restrictions on R&D for their missiles, testing, et cetera. So the the deal itself was always crazy beyond 2020, even if you bought into this idea that it was a good deal for the first five years. So why would we be wanting to go back to a deal that's already so temporary, so narrow, and, and go forward from there? Now, you know, Iran's basically doing things that weren't allowed until 2023, 2025. They've started advancing nuclear technological know-how that you can't get back. You can't just say, okay, give us back your ability to produce 60%. Give us back your knowledge of using all these advanced centrifuges that you've been testing and how to produce, you know, rapidly 20% and 60% material which means that one day when they put all these centrifuges together illicitly, they'll be able to break out very quickly. So it it doesn't make a lot of sense to go back to the agreement at this point. It it certainly wasn't in January, now even more so. Uh, and, And one other thing that we also learned over the last couple of years, I go back to this, the nuclear weapons archive, right? It was discovered during the JCPOA. Iran had hid it from the negotiators. They All these different sites that we're hearing about, nuclear material being found by the IAEA, nobody knows what these sites are, what material was there, where is the equipment today, what were they hiding, what have they been doing. If you don't even have basic accounting of their nuclear program, how are you having a nuclear deal? So, so no, it doesn't make sense for the United States to go back to JCPOA, it never did. And certainly now for the Iranians, if I was in Tehran negotiating, it does not make any sense to go back to JCPOA for them either. And and I'll I'll actually make one interesting observation here, which is lost in the debate, because we talk about this as if the JCPOA doesn't exist anymore, that everybody's just out of the JCPOA and we're trying to come back in. That's true in the sense of what we are doing, our activities. Um, Iran is producing, enriching uranium uh, and producing heavy water, testing centrifuges, all in violation or in excess of the nuclear commitments of the JCPOA. But the JCPOA still exists. Iran has never left the JCPOA formally. And they've done that very intentionally because so long as the JCPOA legal structure exists and nobody has said it's over, which means you've gone to the Security Council and snapped back UN sanctions, that means the Sunset still exists. So you could you could sit there in Vienna and negotiate some other deal with them right now and say, okay, we're going to give you $5 billion if you just halt producing 60% enriched uranium. And you can have that deal. That's a side deal to the JCPOA that still exists. The Security Council resolution endorsing the deal still exists. So Iran could cut some deal like that. And when you get to 2025, when you get to 2027, when you get to 2031, all of the security council restrictions lift. So they've won. They have it. They got it. They're Mm -hmm. at the bomb fully legally just just by playing this game. So we have to remember that no matter what we're doing here, it doesn't make sense if we haven't snapped back UN Security Council Resolution 2231 and taken the sunsets away from the Iranians. To me at this point, if the Iranians don't want to go back to JCPOA, then the first thing the Biden administration and the Europeans need to do is snap back and reset all of these negotiations.
0: Um, I wanted to take your, your pulse as a, as, as a Washington insider and just kind of, ha- I mean, first of all, how live is this issue in, uh, on, on Capitol Hill? And is there, any, um, is, is there any desire to reach another diplomatic solution with the Iranians that has been spoken about, kind of a, a less for less deal?
1: Yeah, I I think that there was always skepticism on Capitol Hill of going back to JCPOA. I think uh, Republicans have have been very vocal in opposition to it. Um, They've made very clear almost the entire House Republican caucus in the House of Representatives is now on record saying they oppose going back, they oppose lifting sanctions, and they'll work to reimpose any sanctions lifted. Uh, That's a big deal for the private sector because they are paying attention to the pendulum swinging on our political system and who's going to win the congressional elections next year and who's going to be the next president in 2025. Uh, So so that has uh, complications, but even on the democratic side, you see a lot of skepticism. They're, they're giving a new president, the leader of their party room in his first year in office. Um, I think the politics of the United States changed a lot after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where sort of this, deference to the administration has gone away, even for a lot of Democrats uh, in foreign policy. Uh, And I think there's concern about lifting sanctions tied to terrorism, tied to the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, in exchange for nuclear concessions without any change in the underlying conduct of supporting terrorism and the IRGC. Um, So I I think there will be a lot of skepticism. I, I would note there is a law in the United States that was passed During the initial Iran deal fight, uh, we call it INARA for short. It's the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015. It states that any nuclear agreement with Iran must be submitted to the Congress for review and the possible rejection by the House and Senate before the president can lift any sanctions. And there's going to be some legal fighting over what exactly any nuclear agreement means. Uh, there is certainly an argument the administration was preparing to say that if they went back to JCPOA, they would not have to go through a vote again like they did in 2015 under the Obama administration because it's the same agreement. They would say I think there's some arguments around that you could make the otherwise, but they would have a strong rhetorical argument that it's the same agreement doesn't have to be voted on. If they cut a new deal, whether they call it an interim deal, incremental deal, a bridging agreement, whatever it is, right? They give. 10 billion dollars to stop 60% enriched uranium. Legally, I don't think there's a way out for the administration to get around this law. So they will have to submit this to Congress. There will have to be some sort of a procedural motion taken and a vote taken. Now that doesn't mean that Congress under democratic control is going to reject it and and defy the president. But it does make the politics for the president that much more difficult, the United States, and will be another attempt to show the market there is not support for any of these agreements in Washington.
0: Very interesting. I mean, if I can move you away from Washington for a moment, as you know, Baikon, we're focused on the uh, on the U.K., Um, I wonder what, you, what your sense is about the, the role influence of not just the UK, but the E3 more broadly on the negotiations as we look ahead to the talks next week.
1: Listen, I have personally been quite disappointed with the Johnson government on this issue. Uh, I think many of us had very high hopes uh, when the prime minister came to office because we know there is strong conservative opposition uh, to the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, There is certainly backbench Tory support for getting out of the deal, for the snapback uh, of U.N. sanctions uh, and for finding some common position uh, with Israel, with our Gulf allies and with the United States uh, to put pressure on Iran to change its whole range of malign activities. Uh, We've had British citizens taken hostage. We have had British citizens killed uh, in uniform uh, in in Iraq um, in the last couple of years. We've had British uh, ships taken uh, in the high seas. So there, there's no shortage of reasons uh, for, for the British government uh, to take a decisive action here uh, and snap back. Originally, the UK, along with France uh, and Germany, said if the Iranians enrich uranium to 20 percent, they would snap back the UN sanctions. It didn't happen. It hasn't happened at 60%. It hasn't happened with uranium metal being produced. It hasn't happened with taking the IAEA hostage and extorting them and taking videotapes and all kinds of things they're doing to limit access to inspectors. And so I think fundamentally there's a real question for the British government post-Brexit to ask, why are you still attached to this European foreign policy view of Iran? When it is not in your foreign policy interests. And I would hope that if there's any entertainment of this incremental less for less. uh, Something where Iran gets to gain all of its nuclear advances. And is not going to go back to any of the restrictions of the JCPOA. That the British government puts forward a very firm position. Which is uh, we are going to snap back UN Security Council Resolution 2231. They can do it as a participant in the JCPOA. Uh, There was dispute over whether the U.S. could do it last year. We thought we could. Um, They disagreed. But uh, but that would be a no brainer step for uh, Her Majesty's government to take.
0: Mm. I mean, and just uh, kind of from 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 where I sit in in Jerusalem, um, we understand I've had conversations with Israeli officials who are part of this um, kind of upgraded strategic dialogue uh, with the Biden administration. Um, what do you what do you make of that uh, of that conversation and uh, kind of reaching to Israeli needs from from this current uh, U.S. administration?
1: Listen, I, I think it's better to be in the room than not in the room. It's better to be talking than not talking. Right. We, we reflect on where the bilateral relationship U.S.-Israel was in the late Obama years, and it was really, really, really bad. And a a freezing out of dialogue, uh, no sharing of direction, uh, no strategic um, discussions, uh, even if there was disagreement. And so I think fundamentally for national security advisors to have meetings together at the high levels, to have all of your interagency teams to be discussing and giving each other their arguments is healthy uh, for a close bilateral relationship. I don't believe that that actually is changing policy in the United States. Uh, So long as Iranian policy for the United States is coordinated by Rob Malley, who's our special envoy for Iran. We are heading towards some sort of disastrous deal uh, with Iran and we are on a collision course, unfortunately, in the bilateral relationship with Israel. That is starting to come to the surface. I think for the first several months, there was a lot of happy talk and it was nice and people were excited about it. and We thought this was something new and fresh, but we're getting to the sort of the the meat on the bones here of, all right, uh, the Biden administration is looking a little more desperate to get any deal with Iranians. They're going back to Vienna. They're entertaining something other than JCPOA now. Uh, And they're hearing from their Israeli counterparts reportedly a lot of disagreement on that. Uh, And we saw just in the last few days at the Manama conference uh, in Bahrain, two American officials speaking publicly. One was Rob Malley, The other was a senior National Security Council official for the Middle East, Brett McGurk, both of them showing strong daylight uh, with their Israeli counterparts. Uh, McGurk even saying that uh, an Israeli strike on Iran would not be prudent, uh, would not work, would not change uh, uh, Iranian behavior. Uh, So I think there is strain emerging there. Uh, It was always going to happen if you have a fundamental disagreement about the nature of the regime and how to handle the regime. Um, But ultimately, the question is, would the United States interfere with an Israeli decision to take matters into its own hands? Um, We've never had to entertain that in in a very real way. Um, Obviously, there was a lot of saber rattling for years under the Netanyahu government. Nothing ever happened, obviously stayed in the covert realm via the Mossad. Um, Will that actually emerge during Bennett's term? Will that happen during a follow-up term if this government holds under Lapid? And how will that play out in the bilateral relationship? That is unknown. The wild card here, which is kind of funny on all issues, issues related to Iran, issues related to the Palestinians, is that it seems sort of the the mutual politics of the U.S.-Israeli relationship right now rely upon a common dislike of Bibi Netanyahu, and sort of doing whatever it takes on both sides to preserve this coalition government to not allow Netanyahu to, to retake the premiership. Uh, and so that's sort of the major leverage that Israelis have over the Americans today, which is if you do this, the government will collapse and you'll have Netanyahu back. Uh, and you've seen that sort of messaged in other contexts with the Palestinian consulate uh, in Jerusalem and other matters. Um, I imagine that also uh, is something uh, that is in the back of people's minds uh, on Iran as well.
0: Mm. Um, indeed. I mean just 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 finally, I mean, from everything that we that we said, I suppose two final questions to to, to end with. I mean, how do you see that it's now inevitable that uh, that Iran, you know, with, with people are starting to talk about a threshold state, but it's inevitable that they will they will pass that uh, that threshold. Um, and if as we get closer and kind of the Israeli Israeli government talk about stopping them, is there any conceivable way that the U.S. would give them some uh, some some help, even if it's just the diplomatic coverage and or some kind of logistical support?
1: On the first question. No, I don't think it's inevitable. I, I think these things are never inevitable. There is some point in time that we likely never know when that actually crosses into an inevitability that um, happened with North Korea. Um, in hindsight, we didn't know when that happened. Um, people thought they had more time. Uh, so this this could happen at any moment. Um, you just you just don't know. You rely as best you can on your intelligence, but your intelligence only knows what your intelligence knows. Uh, mm-hmm. You rely on the IAEA, but obviously the IAEA doesn't know a lot, uh, as we've seen from the nuclear archive and undeclared sites. Um, and so we also know that the Israeli military capabilities are different than the American military capabilities, and so their timeline. Their, what what they what the Israelis would call the zone of immunity for Iran, that point at which for the Israelis they feel that their military capabilities may not be able to stop an inevitability. That timeline is faster. That that comes sooner for the Israelis than the Americans potentially, just from a military capability perspective. So I I think these are serious conversations. I, I do I take seriously saber rattling when it's very public and they talk about we're putting money in the budget to plan for an operation on Iran. That doesn't sound like the IDF a lot. You know, usually it's sort of like a very clandestine strike and you didn't know it was coming. And then suddenly, like you hear, there's a massive strike that just occurred. Um, so it's a little hokey when it's you know put into the budget. But at the same time, you know, you talk to security officials and this is a real discussion. It is happening. They're going to have to make a decision. Would the Americans support it? Would they provide support clandestinely or overtly? I think that's a very difficult thing to answer right now. The posture of the American government right now seems to be very comfortable with defensive weapon systems and not offensive. Uh, We saw the politics of that playing out on Iron Dome, uh, where the messaging of ultimately to get that through the House of Representatives was, you can support this. It's a defensive system. That was a nuance a lot of people missed. Um, We have somebody in the Pentagon named Colin Call. He's the top policy official. Big controversy over his nomination. He got through. On a tie-breaking vote from the vice president, somebody who has published in the last 10 years on his opposition to an Israeli strike on Iran, who also, by the way, says that the strike on Osirak was a mistake in 1981, even though it's mm-hmm. celebrated today. Uh, and he's in charge of policy for the Pentagon. So I think these are open question marks, and these have to be very serious discussions behind closed doors between the highest, highest levels of the American and Israeli government.
0: Well, listen, just, just like you, we're going to keep an active uh, an active watch on this, but thank you so much for your insight today. Um, really appreciate it. You
1: thank bet. You. Thanks for having me.